<laughs> See? All right. This is Hebrews 2020. The title is We See Jesus. The increment is 96. The place is Hebrews 4, verses 1 to 11, a section of scripture that we are scrutinizing right now through the help of the Holy Spirit, and I hope to our temporal and eternal benefit. We'll be speaking much about the Sabbath, both in this message and perhaps in ones to come, and just what its meaning is to us, because as we're going to learn, there remains a Sabbath observance for the people of God, and that's at the climax of our passage in Hebrews 4.9. So let's begin with a word of prayer, as we always usually do. Father, we thank you for yet another opportunity to appropriate your grace, and we pray that we will indeed appropriate your grace to the end that we enter into your rest, the repose, the tranquility, and the celebratory joy of the Sabbath, the Sabbath not as a day, but as a perpetual rest that we're going to consider as we now advance in your word. We let we ask that you'll let the Holy Spirit direct us and guide us in the way we should go and that we will be able to understand with our hearts and minds your plan, your purpose, your will, and our destiny in Jesus Christ, your Son. We ask it in his name. Amen. Here's a plausible scenario. Throughout the Hebrews homily, the PT is trying to persuade his readers against what he knows to be a self-destructive pattern. Unbelief in the promises of God is always a self-destructive pattern, whether now or then. The reasoning behind one persuasive argument that we will continue to entertain in our study, Lord willing, is that he's attempting to dissuade his readers from a course of thought that would lead to a serious compromise of their open confession of Jesus Christ, their public confession of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. If the theory is right that says that these Christians were returning, or at least entertaining, a return to practices, including the temple sacrifices, connected to the Levitical order of priesthood, to avoid social shaming, ostracism, and eventually something worse. As Hebrews 12.4, the writer said, you haven't yet struggled against sin to the point of blood, shedding blood, not yet. And if that's the case... If that theory is right, then we have a major interpretive tool for the book of Hebrews, but we also have a major application to our own time in which social shaming, ostracism, and eventually something possibly worse may be directed toward people with a worldview that is other than 
the one being foisted upon the population of the world by invisible overlords. Now, both their abandonment of meeting with others in Hebrews 10.25, who have the spirit of faith, and their public offering of animal sacrifices, if that's what they were intending, through the old order of priesthood, well, that may quell the shame that they would receive from the cancel culture of the time. And there was a cancel culture in their time. There is in our time, of course, it's perhaps an overused word, but it's a pretty appropriate one. They may well avoid the shame that they would receive from the cancel culture if they were to go back and offer these animal sacrifices in the temple complex or in their places of sacrifice. But in gaining the approval of men, they would arouse the disapproval of God. The PT reminds them that the approval of God, and he's only pleased by faith, the approval of God means infinitely more than the approval of their contemporaries. Public offering of animal sacrifices by those who had once received the knowledge of the truth and who have even made a public confession of Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross, his once and for all and final sacrifice. Public offering of animal sacrifices by these same people would in fact result in a public shaming of God's Son. And it would also indicate or open up the opportunity for his haters to slander Jesus Christ himself. The more we move forward in this homily, the more I'm inclined to think that this is what the PT is warning against in his own time. This does not constitute, and this is what commentators have feared, but this does not constitute anti-Jewish sentiment at all, or any aspersion cast on Judaism. It is rather an acknowledgement that the practices of Judaism before 30 A.D. were an accurate foreshadowing of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for sin, which is final and unrepeatable. On the other hand, for those who receive the knowledge of the truth of this final and unrepeatable offering, for them to continue in those inefficacious sacrifices or return to them while they're quiet about their own confession of Jesus Christ, return to them because of the apparent promise by Rome of protection on the Jewish religion. If they were to do that, these temple sacrifices would be an example of meaningless and redundant ritualism. But more than that, for them to do so 
just in order to evade public shaming and social and professional shaming and even worse under the Roman Empire and its collusion with apostate Jerusalem would be downright sinful. It would be kind of parallel to the preachers who avoided preaching the cross of Christ or who advocated circumcision, which again is a return to practices and rituals that have been rendered redundant through the finished work of Christ. They did so just to avoid persecution for the cross of Christ, Paul said. Now we happen to be in a moment of time in the history of the world and of our own country when public shaming is reaching a level which could result in catastrophe. A calamity for a once free nation that has long been desired. This calamity is desired by those who intend to enslave us so that we can, quote, embrace their supervision, as the Chinese communists like to euphemize it. The intolerance and the hypocrisy of the correctly called cancel culture is breathtaking. But God already has the drop on this cancel culture. He's already canceled it at the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. He's also canceled all of us. We're already canceled in Adam. He's canceled our solidarity with the first man, Adam. He's canceled our solidarity with the slavery of sin to make us new in solidarity with Christ. I'm not afraid of being canceled. I've already been canceled. The new Pharisees and Sadducees, that, like the ones who oppose Jesus, have gone beyond the defaming of people who hold different views or a different worldview from theirs. They have progressed to disenfranchisement and ostracism and even threats of deprogramming, something we heard a lot about in the era of the cults and deprogramming kids that ran away from home to join a cult, one cult or another. Deprogramming now also has a Maoist ring to it, and it reflects the policy of the Chinese Communist Party, for example, CCP. And they don't have any qualms of conscience about slavery, mass imprisonment, and genocide. If anyone thinks there's a long time between cancellation and concentration camps, think again. And learn history. And by history, I don't mean the twisted fantasies of revisionist history that are being foisted on the ignorant today. I mean the real chronicle of things as they actually happened. Now, thoughts precede actions. 
thoughts lead to intents, and intents to actions. That's why the Word of God, which is alive and energetic, pierces to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, and is a critic of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Thoughts lead to intentions. God gave the desert generation his word in the wilderness. He delivered them from Egypt and gave them his word in the wilderness. In that sense, we are a people in the wilderness, in a kind of no man's land, which is at the end of the evil age and at the beginning of the messianic age. And we too have received the word of God. It's alive and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It differentiates our consciousness. It becomes a critic of the thoughts that lead to the intentions of the heart. We're laid wide open in this wilderness to the one who sees all and who looks upon the heart and who understands the motives and who will one day evaluate us based on what we did in these bodies in this wilderness. Now today, the thought that some should be interred in camps until they learn to confess the biased ideology of a certain group is inevitably followed by the intent to do so. Because the thought has been expressed, you know the intent is there. If enough political power is amassed to make it happen, it will be enacted. Again, the PT stands in the gap, though. Again, the PT, pastor-teacher, poimen didaskalos, stands in the gap, as all PTs must, and indeed, indeed, as all confessing Christians must and by confessing, I mean Christians who freely, openly acknowledge their faith in Jesus Christ. The pastoral author of Hebrews wrote and spoke in a time of remarkable historical crisis. We find ourselves at a crisis point in history. The author of Hebrews forcefully reminds his audience that the approval of God is infinitely more important than the approval of people. What garners God's approval is faith. That was true then. It was true from Abel to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. It's true today. Faith includes trust that God will be our helper. That really is a trajectory in Hebrews that finds a crescendo in Hebrews 13.5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that says, what shall man do to me? The Lord God is my helper. God is my helper. What's it matter what people do to me? Is kind of the 
Well, it's a kind of a climactic thought in Hebrews. So faith includes trust that God will be our helper in an environment of hostility, intolerance, and neo-Pharisaism. For us, and I'm thankful for this every day, for us, into this scenario enters the homily called Hebrews. The Holy Spirit spoken homily called Hebrews. We're in its fourth chapter. And so I'm going to read my translation so far of Hebrews 4, 1 to 11. Instead of doing precisely a word by word, I'm just reading this section and several messages in a row and then sort of commenting on its meaning and its application. Therefore, while the promise remains to enter into his rest, let me emphasize that. It's also something in the scriptures that we've been looking at, especially from Psalm 95 or Septuagint 94, and he's about ready to hook up Genesis 2, 2, and 3 in the scriptural mix. Therefore, while the promise remains to enter his rest, let us be intensely concerned lest any of you think that he has come too late to enter it, meaning, of course, the rest he's talking about isn't a land called Canaan, but it is a rest that's still available for the people of God to enter. And in fact, we're going to find out there's still a Sabbath observance for the people of God, which has to do with rest and cessation from labor and toil. Verse 2, for good news has also been proclaimed to us. What links us is the gospel. As it was to them, that is the so-called wilderness generation. But they didn't profit from the message they heard. Not uniting with those who heard by faith. And we showed you that Caleb was one who heard by faith. And his faith included trust that God would be our warrior in the land, as it were. For we who are believing are entering into rest. I emphasize that phrase again, entering into rest. Just as he who said, and that's speaking of God, who said, as I swore in my wrath, if they will enter into my rest. And that's idiomatic for they're not going to enter into my rest by unbelief, that's for sure. And yet his works have been in existence, he goes on to say, here in verse 3b. And yet his works have been in existence since the founding of the universe. And again, in our present text, he says, that's Psalm 94.11 in the Septuagint, if they enter into my rest... Tain katapausen mu, katapausen, or katapausen, which we've already looked at in previous messages. And that's a key catchword, katapausen. And we're going to find ten words. We've already looked at them once, but I, I think it bears repetition. In fact, I know it does. It needs repetition. 
10 words that refer to what's otherwise known as apocatastasis or the restoration. Apocatastasis pantone, the restoration of everything, a universal restoration. There are 10 words in the scripture that refer to this, and one of them has to do with the Sabbath. And it's an eschatological Sabbath, an endless Sabbath. It's a Sabbath that doesn't just mean tranquility and repose, but a sharing of the very happiness of God himself and the joy of Messiah. And it's uninterrupted joy. No one can take it away, and it's perpetual. So there are ten words that indicate this universal restoration. One of them is katapasin, or katapasin, as we've seen it here, K-A-T-A-P-A-U-S-I-N. Again, you'll see these in print if you have access to the notes, which we're trying to make very accessible. And so again, 4.3, and his works have been in existence since the founding of the universe for somewhere, verse 4, and of course he means there, Genesis 2.2, 2, somewhere he speaks about the seventh day in this way. Now he relates katapausen to rest to a seventh day. When God entered into rest after beginning the works of his creation, let's see how this goes. And God rested from all his works on the seventh day. We're getting an idea that the rest is broader than an inheritance in the land of Canaan. We're entering into a rest that has to do with God's own rest. And again, verse 5, in our present text, if they shall enter... My rest. He keeps referring to that passage over and over again in Psalm 94.11. In verse 6, Therefore, since it remains for some to enter into it, that means now or during the writing of this epistle, in probably the 60s A.D. Therefore, it remains for some to enter into it. He can't mean the land of Canaan or the land of Palestine or any land. He's talking about a perpetual spiritual rest. It remains for some to enter it. And those who were formerly evangelized did not enter because of disobedience. He again specifies a certain day today. Sound familiar? Saying in David, he attributes Psalm 94 in the Septuagint to David, or Psalm 95 in the English text to David. David was one of the prophets, even though he was a king, he was also a prophet, in whom God spoke. So this goes all the way back to Hebrews 1.1. God who spoke long ago in the prophets. David is one of them. Saying in David, after such a long time, meaning David was hundreds of years after the wilderness generation, the desert generation, the majority of which did not enter into rest, or the rest that God provided for them. Hundreds of years later, David wrote about entering into rest. Hundreds of years after David, the PT writes about entering into rest. 
Hundreds of years after that PT, this PT is saying we still are urged to enter into God's rest. So again, we'll start at verse 6. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter into it, and those who formerly were formerly evangelized did not enter because of disobedience, he again specifies a certain day today, in fact, saying in David, after such a long time, just as it was said before, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. True in David's time. True in Moses' time. True in this PT's time true today. Then he says, showing Jesus Christ's superiority not only to angels and to Moses, but also to Joshua, whose name is Yeshua also, the superiority of Jesus Christ over Joshua, verse 8. For if Joshua, Jesus, meaning Joshua, not our Lord Jesus, If he had caused them to rest, that is, if Joshua's conquest of the land had resulted in rest, God wouldn't have been speaking of another later day, meaning Joshua was not successful to bring all the people into rest, even though they went into the land and fought the giants. Consequently, and this is where I want to focus strongly on this message, Consequently, there remains a Sabbath observance for the people of God. And I'm here to say that that Sabbath observance remains for the people of God today as much as it did for the people of God in this pastor's day. Now, this word for Sabbath observance is extraordinary. I'll tell you why. It's S-A-B-B. A-T-I-S-M-O-S. It's sabbatismos, another catchword and a very extraordinary word because this is what is called a an hapax legomena, which means it's only used one time. Hapax, once and for all, once and only, once only. Legomena, from the Greek word lego, to speak. Hapax legomena. That means sabbatismos, translated Sabbath or Sabbath observance, is only used once in all of the Greek scriptures, including the Septuagint and the New Testament. Once only. Yes, sabbaton for Sabbath is used probably, I'm thinking, over a hundred times throughout the scriptures. But sabbatismos is only used one time. So there remains a Sabbath observance, is how it should be translated. A Sabbath observance for the people of God. For the one who enters into rest, that's Katapasan again, ceases from his works as God did from his. Now, just a hint, what, why would you be doing works like offering animal sacrifices in the temple complex if Jesus Christ had already accomplished the work of redemption? You wouldn't be standing firm and watching the salvation of the Lord, would you? You'd be trying to save yourself. 
Therefore, says verse 11, and here's the exhortation that always accompanies exposition. Let us make every effort to enter into that rest. This is kind of a beautiful way to say it. Let's work really hard to stop working. So that we don't fall into the same pattern of disobedience slash disbelief. Now, the reason I say disobedience, disbelief is because this word apatheia is both. It means a disobedience and disbelief, or it means a disbelief or unbelief that is, in God's eyes, disobedience. Now, in increment 95, and I know that some people don't like repetition, but be careful that you don't become like those philosophers or those pop philosophers on Mars Hill who like to talk about only something new and novel all the time. You always had to have something new and novel. You might not like repetition, but it's necessary. In increment 95, I-95, we considered a number of synonyms for the rest that is entered by the people of God. That this rest is still to be entered means that its ultimate meaning is not that of a literal land, but metaphorical for the endless, listen carefully, it's metaphorical for the endless eschatological restoration, to use a play on words, of all things, and the mutual indwelling of God in his universal creation and the universal creation in all of its times in God. It speaks of a salvific or a soteriological, if you want to get theological, and we are getting theological and we're not ashamed of it. It is a salvific or soteriological fullness in that which the Bible calls the fullness of times. For example, in Ephesians 1.10, God intends in the fullness of times to sum up all things in Christ. The fullness of times, to pleromatos tukton chiron in Ephesians 1.10, you'll see it in prints, in print, to pleromatos ton chiron in Ephesians 1.10. The fullness of times is when all times epics, eras of history, become simultaneous. When all of history is redeemed, and it will be, by Christ filling all time with himself. All of history will be redeemed by Christ filling all time with himself. As well as all of universal space. Now Abraham Joshua Heschel the one a very remarkable scholar made much of the fact that God is more concerned with time than space. And he goes into this in great detail in his, I think, masterwork, which is called God in Search of Man. And it's an exposition of the philosophy of Judaism. So 
I have the highest regard for Judaism, so when I'm teaching Hebrews, it should never be understood or it should never be, I should never be misread as in any way demeaning Judaism. On the contrary, the fullness of time and the filling up of time with Jesus Christ is eternity in time. We could even say it's the eternalization of time and the omnipresence of glory in the universe. And so, as Jürgen Moltmann, the great Protestant scholar, has taught, Shekinah, which is a word for the glory of God, and Sabbath, which is the rest, find a correlation in eschatology. The whole universe being filled with God's glory in the eschatological Sabbath. So the connection of Shekinah and Sabbath, which is found in Moltmann's, which I consider to be a masterwork of Christian eschatology called The Coming of God. If you read The Coming of God, especially the parts of of it that are dealing with the restoration and the Sabbath, and you blend it with the reading of Abraham Joshua Heschel's God in Search of Man, and he also has a little pamphlet which I read in two days called The Sabbath, you'll find an amazing conflation of what we should expect universally. Now, someone would say it's against science and the science is solid about entropy and the second law of thermodynamics, but I'm here to tell you there's no such thing as solid science. There is such a thing as the solid word of God. Science is never solid. It's never fixed. It's never all the data in. The more data, the more science, so-called, and its findings changes. I just want to throw that challenge in today because I'm a little sick of people bowing and kowtowing at the idol called science. As any prophet would be sick of idolatry, pastors ought to be a little bit sickened by something that's gone beyond a due respect for scientific findings into an idolatry for the idol called science. Given that the Holy Spirit speaks as the eternal spirit, Hebrews 9.14, and he is the eternal spirit of the everlasting God, I love that phrase in Genesis 21.33, given that the Holy Spirit speaks as the eternal spirit of the everlasting God, who is dynamically present in time, The promise to enter into rest is not confined to the Exodus generation. The promise applied also to the time of the psalm composer, David, and later to the initial recipients of this homily called Hebrews. It applies even now to the present readers of this homily, to you, to me. By faith, we can enter into a rest that is an eschatological Sabbath, which is yet to be universal or universally manifested. We can enter into that rest now. Though full participation of that rest is yet to be had completely 
and universally, and even universally of our total person, including the body which will be raised to glory. In the section of the homily now under our scrutiny, to the catchword kataposis or kataposis is added the seventh day. Again, you'll see this in print. I'm saving the overhead here for other words. Te hemera te abdome, or hebdome. Te hemera te hebdome. The seventh day becomes another catchphrase in Hebrews 4.4. 4. And this is in connection with Genesis 2.2. 2. And then with the seventh day is, again, this word, the Sabbath. Only a unique use of the word Sabbath, sabbatismos, as we've seen in Hebrews 4.9. Now, if you're particularly astute, and I have the advantage here because I've been studying these things hour after hour after hour to the point of mental exhaustion. So I have a, an advantage I'm becoming astute, though I don't consider myself that yet. But if you're really astute here in looking at this passage, you may see a connection between the seventh day and today. We may also surmise that today we can enter into the rest of this seventh day. In Hebrews 4.3, the PT asserts that the works from which God rested have been in existence since the initial creation of the universe. The works, ton ergon, apokataboles, kosmu, Genethenton. The works have been existence in existence since the initial creation of the universe. Consequently, from this, this rest is not in a place, but in God, who rested from his works when he began his creation. This is the theological study called protology. Protology is P-R-O-T-O. L-O-G-Y, it's the counterbalance or the balance of eschatology, E-S-C-H-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y, the beginning and the end. Jesus Christ encompasses both as the beginning and the end in Revelation 22:7-22:13. It is also the rest of God when he completes his creation in a new eternal creation. That's eschatology. So protology is that God rested from his works when he began his creation and ended up in a what we call a material creation. It's a creation that he intends to eternalize and redeem. Let me just throw a hint at you of a large concept. The creation of God is completed by redemption. That's just a thought you can hang on to and we'll fan it out in times to come. And so he completes his creation in a new eternal creation. That's eschatology. 
For as we'll see, the rest that God entered after the beginning of his creative works is complemented, we could say, and completed by the rest that he enters when he consummates his works. He consummates his works not merely by the act of creation, but by the act of redemption. God the creator is God the redeemer. God the creator of all things is the redeemer of all things. As Moltmann rightly wrote, quote, the Redeemer is none other than the Creator. And listen to this reasoning. He goes on to say, he would contradict himself if he were not to redeem everything he has made. Then he added, the God who made the universe will one day be all in all. 1 Corinthians 15, 28. This again is from probably of all the books I've read by Moltmann, I've read 10 or 12 of them, I think, by now. The Coming of God is the one that I find most important or edifying or whatever. That's personal, though. A lot of other people have other favorites. We are accumulating insights to the end, and this is a reiteration. This is where we're getting repetitive, but repetition is for your safety, and it's not bothersome to me, as we know from Philippians 3.1. We are accumulating insights to the end that we can demonstrate that the rest, katapasis, being spoken of by the Hebrews writer, is indeed synonymous with God ultimately being all in all. In 1 Corinthians 15, 28. So katapasis becomes one of the words for a universal restoration. Let's just put that as one. Katapasis or katapasis. I can't stop pronouncing it incorrectly. So I will now deem that my incorrect pronunciation of this word is the correct one. Just being, just fooling around here. Now, the second word. This is called the universal perichoresis, which is God being all in all. And so we have perichoresis, which is another word. It was coined by Nazianzus in the patristic era, perichoresis. We'll get into this a little bit more down the road and have in the past quite a bit already. Perichoresis is when God is all in all. So that's 1 Corinthians 15, 28. It's also called by some of the old scholars circumincession. It means a mutual interpenetration of the triune God with all of a completed creation. And it's a creation completed by redemption. Moreover, as was already suggested in I-95, katapausis, or rest, is synonymous with other words in the Scripture. So we have katapausis and perichoresis, 1 Corinthians 15, 29. We have, thirdly, a word called apokatastasis, A-P-O-K-A-T-A-S-T-A-S-I-S. 
Apocatastasis is another word. It's called the restoration of all things in Acts 3.21. Hold on to that verse because it's extremely important and will be down the road. It's also referring to a what we're going to see later as a jubilee. And that's going to be our key, hopefully our key concept in the next message if we get to increment 97 someday down the road. And so we have apocatastasis. We have also a word that's very rarely considered, but it's the word ana, A-N-A, P-S-U-X-E-O-S. Anapsuxios. Anapsuxios, which means refreshment. And it's a time of universal refreshment in Acts 3.19 to 20, in the same kind of area as apocatastasis. Anapsuxios, universal refreshment. Rest and refreshment are both kind of connected conceptually, too. And then we have, fifthly, the palingenesia. I've referred to this quite often. Palingenesia refers, in this case, normally it means regeneration. It can be used for individual regeneration that we call the second birth or the birth from above. But Jesus universalized it in Matthew 19, 28. So we have the word palingenesia. You see the word again there used so often in Hebrews. And then Genesis, again Genesis, or a new Genesis is another way of looking at it. So if you put all these concepts together, the words are for the same thing that's going to happen, for the same phenomenon. But each of these words lends a kind of nuance to what that eternal rest or eternal new creation is going to be like. So we have here five words already. We have five meaning, five words for the same thing. We've already gone over this when we were on I-95. Now we're on I-96. Six, there's the kinekatesis, K-A-I-N-E. You'll notice I'm just using transliteration now into the English uncles, but it's kinekatesis, K-A-I-N, long E. Katesis means creation, new creation. New creation, therefore, is another word for the universal restoration of all things because the new creation is of all things. Revelation 21.5, God from the throne, which is Christ from the cross, says what? Look, I'm making everything new. And then in 21.6, he says a curious thing. It is done. It is done. And so we have kinekatesis, obviously, from Isaiah 65.17. 6522, 2 Corinthians 517, make that Isaiah 6622, Isaiah 6517, and of course 2 Corinthians 517 and Galatians 615 along with Revelation 21.5. Then we have another word after kinekatesis. We have apolutrosis, A-P-O, now I'm starting to write in Greek. It's embarrassing when you do a grocery list in the Greek. But apolutrosis. Apolutrosis is a word that means redemption. And so we have, in the universal sense of redemption, in Romans 8.23, all creation's waiting for it. 
It's a day of redemption, says Ephesians 4.30. And so there's a universalization of apolutrosis of redemption. Just like there's a universalization of polygenesia, regeneration, there's a universalization of apolutrosis, which is called redemption. This also relates to a shortened form of the word lutrosis, which is also translated redemption in Hebrews 9.12, where it says that Jesus obtained eternal redemption through his blood. Through his own blood, not the blood of lambs and rams and bullocks and doves and pigeons, etc. Then there is, and these can go in any, don't need to go in any particular order, but there is one of my favorites here is anakephaliosis, A-N-A-K-E-P-H-A-L-I. A-I-O-S-I-S, anakephaliosis. That's from Ephesians 1.10. The universality of that is most obvious. It's a universal recapitulation. It adds the word tapanta of all things, and that's when all things are going to be gathered, garnered, summed up in Christ. That's the mystery of God's intention in Ephesians 1.10. We can't be ignorant of that mystery. If we are, then we limit God in a way that limits our own spirituality. The ninth word is found in Hebrews. It's deorthosis. Deorthosis in Hebrews 9.10 means correction. It means rectification, a setting right or a setting correct. Of all things, again, in Hebrews 9.10, it's connected with a tabernacle in 9.11 of Hebrews that is not of this created world. And so we're talking about an otherworldly correction that inserts itself into the present creation, the present situation. And so we have deorthosis. So we're dealing up, we're, we're going to end up with 11 words at least and probably get m many more and you probably already are thinking of more, I don't know. Ninth therefore is deorthosis. The tenth is in one way most significant because it's apokatalaxi. And that's two L's there. And that means reconciliation, but it, it means a reconciliation. Tapanta is also added to that meaning of all things. And that's the reconciliation of all things or we can call it properly the universal reconciliation. There are people who don't see universal reconciliation in the scriptures. They say there's no such thing in the scriptures. Well, this says the reconciliation that's universal. It's found in Colossians 1.20. It's related explicitly to the peace that was made by God through the blood of Christ's cross the blood of Christ's cross. And that word is, because that word cross has the root word from the Indo-European root word, S-T-A-U. It's S-T-A-U-R-O-S, the cross, the blood of Christ's cross. Because that word is directly related to the blood of Christ's cross, I call it instaration. And so instauration really can be the 12th term, and it 
but it's more than that because instyration is the name for all of these things combined. All together, then, this universal reconciliation, this universal recapitulation, restoration, refreshment, rest, all of it is connected to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's what we've called before the UICC, the universal impact of the cross of Christ. That universal impact being redemptive, reconciling, rectifying, transformative, transfigurative, transconfigurative, whatever you want to call it. It's the law of the cross. So apokatalaxai tapanta is in many cases the most significant because there is explicit mention of the blood of the cross of Christ, Colossians 1.20. He's called the son of God's love, Colossians 1.13. And at the, so at the basis of the reconciliation of all things in the heavens and on earth, talk about a universe, we have the universal impact of the cross of Christ, which is a kind of B part to the A part, which is the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. So it's the universal result of the peace that God made by the blood of Christ's cross, blood that is related to the ratification of the new, the everlasting, and better covenant and the new creation of all things, blood that is the meaning of the procurement of eternal universal redemption, blood that speaks more eloquently than the blood of Abel, blood that is the means for justifying all of humanity and rectifying all of creation, redeeming all time and saving all of humanity from wrath, not only from God's wrath, but from one's own wrath and acting in anger and bitterness. By whatever name this rest can be called, it's instauration. I-N-S-T-A-U-R-A-T-I-O-N. Which is a creation and a redemption, or a creation rooted in redemption, that is universal in two special senses. It's universal of the whole person, and it's universal by embracing all persons and all beings in Christ over the course of all time. I've repeated this terminology on purpose because it's important that we know it and that we know the words that describe future worlds so that we can have a well-defined hope. To these 11, we're about to add a tenth synonym for the rest that God bids us enter. That'll be next time, perhaps increment 97. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, for your, we have total confidence in your sustaining of us through your providence, your care, and your love, that you've sustained this assembly so that we can continue to study your word without interruption. You've been so gracious, and we thank you. We have every confidence that you will allow us to enter into this rest more and more. We have every confidence that you will also be our helper 
in times to come. And so we thank you and praise you as we close out this increment. In Jesus' name, amen.